You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that continues in the footsteps of our in-store calendar during the time of the pandemic. We continue to celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the summer season. So tonight, we are delighted to have back in the house Cynthia Kaufman. She is no stranger to City Lights, as we have hosted her before on numerous occasions. We are happy to be celebrating a new book entitled The Sea is Rising and So Are We, a Climate Justice Handbook. It is published by PM Press, and it's gotten glowing forward by Bill McKibben. It is an essential read for anyone working as a climate activist or even those who are interested in learning more about the forces that are kind of standing in the way of positive change and, and what we can do to really get involved in the fight against climate change. Cynthia Kaufman is the director of the Vasconcelos Institute for Democracy in Action, where she also teaches community organizing and philosophy. She is the author of the books Getting Past Capitalism, History, Vision, and Hope, and also Challenging Power, Democracy, and Accountability in a Fractured World. She is a lifelong activist and social change activist, uh, having worked on issues such as tenants' rights, police abuse, union organizing, international politics, and most recently, climate change. So she's going to be joined tonight in conversation by Francesca Caparas. Francesca Caparas teaches English and Asian American Studies at De Anza College, and she is the faculty coordinator of the Jean Miller Resource Room for Women, Gender, and Sexuality. She is the 2020-2021 Fulbright Scholar to the Philippines, where she has been uh, researching discourses of digital literacy. Her interests and community work include international human rights, intersectional feminism, digital culture, and decolonization. So uh, without much more ado, Cynthia Kaufman, Francesca Caparas, welcome to City Lights Live. Thanks so much, Peter. All right, Jesse, you wanna start? Yeah, sure, thank you so much. As we get started, I just wanna sort of uh, acknowledge the day. Today is the one year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, and it's been quite a year for many reasons. Um, so just wanting to ground us in that moment, in that history, thinking about where we've come in the last year, especially because while this uh, book focuses on you know, climate change and climate justice, obviously that intersects with questions and issues of racial justice. So thanks everyone for being here. Also, um, it's really great to be in conversation with you again, Cynthia. I really enjoyed our last conversation about your previous book. And now you've written this great book on climate change and given us a lot of ideas for what we can do to you know, rise up, you know, as you say in the title. I imagine many folks in the audience are already aware of the issues with climate change and the work of environmental activists. But in case anyone isn't, Cynthia, could you like talk a bit about what's significant about this particular moment in the climate justice movement. I mean, you know, we're beyond the Rachel Carson silent spring days or the days when we worried about ice caps melting and we we're going to live in water world with Kevin Costner. So in your mind, what is the current climate crisis? All right. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is helpful about this situation we're in is that the International Panel on uh, Governmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has basically said that we have till 2030 to cut our emissions in half, till 2050 to, to go net zero and actually below net zero, meaning in a country like the United States, actually, we owe so much to the global south that we need to actually go below net zero in this country. So it's a terrible situation that we face, but it's also, I want to say, one of those crises that's full of opportunity, right? There's a huge amount that has to change, and it has to change very, very quickly. I mean, literally, the United States needs to cut its emissions by 7.5% every year for the next couple decades. That's a lot. That's really a lot. So then that requires a whole huge amount of change, and, and it's it's, you know, everybody knows that it's frightening and there's all kinds of, we already have millions of climate refugees. We already have our terrible you know, situations with the fires and all those things. And to get to where we need to go, 
we need to change society in some really fundamental ways that I think are going to leave us in a better, a much better place than we were before once we get there. In other words, we can't get there with neoliberal capitalism, right? The only way we're going to get there is with everybody involved and therefore taking everybody's needs seriously. So that means the rights of workers, we need unionization, we need to address the the needs and interests of communities of color that are most impacted by, by what's going on. And there's a big role for government, there's a big role for democracy. So when you think about all those things together, the things we all need to be pushing for are things that are gonna make a much better world. Thank you, I, I appreciate all the different things that you listed in terms of like labor and like, you know, racial equity. And so if you could speak a little bit more to that, cause there's, a, part in your book where you write that climate crisis is a threat multiplier. So can you explain like some of the threats that are being multiplied by this climate crisis? Sure, so a couple examples of that is, um, we have our friend Jane here who lost her house in one of the fires. So, you know, for folks in Northern California who lost their, their homes in the fires, if you have a little bit of money and you have decent insurance, you can buy a new house, right? And you can build a new house. If you didn't have money for insurance or you were a renter, you ended up homeless in those fires. Um, and you ended up displaced and you ended up having to leave your community. So that's one example where the sort of economic inequality and then sort of what's happening with the climate kind of multiply with each other. One of the examples I have in the book, um, there are a lot of places in Africa that are gonna become quite hard to farm in and places where men have title to land and are able to sell their land and women don't and men are more likely to be moving back and forth to cities than women. And so the sort of gender inequality that you have in, in some African societies is actually worsened by the climate crisis. So I, I could sort of go on and on with those kind of examples. And another example that I think is very powerful is um, places in Florida where rich people lived by the beach and poor people lived up in the hills away from the beach. Now we're having climate gentrification, right? Where people, the rich people are now moving back from the beach because the beach is a dangerous place to be. And so then they're displacing people up on the hills. So the, the point is that all of the sort of forms of inequality that we have, if we don't do things right, and we stay on a business as usual track, they're gonna be just that much worse for people who already have it pretty hard. And I do wanna point out that there, there are different people at different numbers, and I can't remember numbers anyway, but there are at least uh, in the, uh, I would say above a million people in the world who've been made refugees by the climate crisis already. Thank you, thank you. Um, especially, you know, for those of us in the Bay Area, we're no strangers to gentrification and displacement. So I think that's really, important to, to point out. And, you know, as I mentioned, like, you know, some folks are probably already aware of a lot of these issues. And I'm curious, like, you know, the scientific community and activists, environmentalists, we've been talking about climate change for decades now, right? And we know a lot of the things that we have to do to curb the disastrous effects of climate change, like you said, reducing our emissions. Why do you think we haven't been able to deal with this problem effectively yet, even though we know what we're supposed to do? Like what have been the barriers to actually addressing climate change? Yeah, I mean, I would say the fossil fuel companies, the fossil fuel companies, the fossil fuel companies and the agribusiness companies. <laughs> you know, and then the governments that they've captured, right? And one of the things that's actually been tragic is, is how much money the fossil fuel companies have pumped into, you know, first it was climate denialism, and, and now it's shifting more towards like stupid and wrong solutions. And um, one of my favorite facts that I uncovered in, in uh, putting the book together was that in 2005, British Petroleum had a campaign to encourage the, the concept of the carbon footprint. Right. And so then it's this idea that it's it's you as an individual and your own consumption choices that are the problem, as opposed to the deep structural things that need to change. Right. And so one of the main points that I make in the book is that what we have to do to get to that really good world that we can actually build. And I think actually there's a good chance we will build that what we have to do for that is. Um, is to stop the power of the fossil fuel companies and to, you know, they're still being subsidized to the tune of trillions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and it's sort of policy change. It's changing how transportation works. It's changes how agriculture works. 
and, and those kind of big policy changes are what we need. You know, and some good things have happened. There was a lot of work done sort of subsidizing uh, renewable energy. And that's now paid off to the point that renewable energy is cheaper to install than fossil fuel energy. And so if we stop the fossil fuel subsidies and we start really rolling out, you know, public transportation, building electrification, all those kinds of things, we haven't moved quickly enough on those because the political system hasn't wanted to, and it hasn't wanted to because it's been captured by, I would say, the fossil fuel industry, the, the um, agribusiness, and then also the sort of like, let's just let business do whatever it wants, right? So mm -hmm. the sort of neoliberal idea of not putting government at the center to solve our problems. Mm -hmm. Wow, that was <laughs> you just listed a lot of really awesome things. Did I, I slow down? Am I blathering? No, 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 no. It's 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 perfect. I'm just like I want to like unpack almost like each of the things that you said because, you know, I'm an English teacher, so I really love like deconstructing narrative and stories, and so I kind of wanted to ask a set of questions that gets at how we transform the narrative of like climate change and climate justice. You know, one of the things that you mentioned is like this common refrain that environmentalism is about like personal lifestyle choice, right? Don't eat meat, bring your own grocery bags and your reusable water bottle, but putting that onus on the individual, one, it can feel debilitating, right? Yeah. And two, it also kind of plays into that neoliberalism, like the individual. So um, can you say a bit about like this, how do we get out of that myth that it's like just an individual choice, not a like systemic problem? Yeah, I, I think we have, we just have to start talking about it differently is one of the things. And so I, I want to talk for a second about like, why it's important and how it's important before the how part that you just, yeah. I also think that there's a huge racial piece there, which is, I know for myself, I've, you know, I've been a social justice activist since 1980, and I came pretty late to environmentalism, because it seemed like a kind of a personal it just seemed like it had no politics and it was just about like sort of like being a good person living well or something like that. And I wasn't really interested in that. I'm interested in power. In other words, how power operates, not having power. And um, the people in the movement have done a huge amount, I would say in the last 15 years to really shift that narrative and to put, so some of it's about putting the needs and interests of people of color first. And that has really helped people also put the sort of systemic issues forward. And I think that's really, really crucial. So some of it is, so then to your how question, I think some of it's actually about, you know, centering the voices of environmentalists of color. I think that's been really, and, and the issues that they look at. The other thing too is, is the sort of, it's, you know, it used to be climate change is something that's going to happen in 50 years to polar bears, right? You know, <laughs> and that you can solve by changing your light bulb, right? Everything, everything which of which in that story is wrong, right? And so now it's like, wow, we're in a situation where our world may not be habitable for ourselves. It's going to be worse for the people who are already worse off. Mm -hmm. And the way we change it is by challenging oppressive power structures and shifting policies, as opposed to go buy like a better car or something like that. Not to say you shouldn't buy a better yeah. car, but that's not the, that's not the important place where the, where the really serious work is. Right. No, no, I think that's great. I think, yeah, what you're saying is like centering the voices of the people who are most impacted, right, by the destruction, the devastation of climate change. And then that will sort of highlight the systemic quality of it, you know? Yes, that's what I was trying to say. Thank you. Yeah. That's exactly no, no, I <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's really good. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, I think there's this other, like, sort of myth that climate change is usually framed in these, it's about partisan politics. So liberals and Democrats believe in it, Republicans and conservatives deny it, but it's not a Republican versus Democrat issue, right? And I think you draw out in your book, you draw out the complexities to show that different political parties are getting in the way of climate justice in their own ways. Yeah. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that, you know, for for a while, the Republicans were really 
what can I say? You know, th their strategy was climate denial. And the Democrats were, were much more that what I would say, again, sort of neoliberalism, sort of business as usual. Like, let's let business solve the problem. Let's solve the problem with market solutions like, you know, cap and trade and, and uh, offsets and things like that. And, and um, I think about uh, Michael Bloomberg and, and uh, Carl Pope wrote a book that was all about all the win-win things for business, you know, like, you know, one of my favorite examples is like, you know, the Empire State Building literally did do an energy retrofit and they changed all their windows and their heating system and they're saving $4 million a year, right? So like, good for them. Like, that's a good thing. But, but what Bloomberg and Pope's book did, and also actually what Bill Gates' new book do, and this is, I think, the more sort of mainstream Democrat approach is to say like, there needs to be no pain. We don't need to, to challenge any systems of power. All we need to do is show business that they will profit from mm -hmm. making these kinds of changes. And that's just not true. It's just not true that, that we need serious regulation. We need uh, to tax the rich so that we can invest in public transportation, blah, blah, like all that stuff. And you know, one, um, I was thinking about another side of this about Democrats is for those of us here in California, we have a two-thirds Democrat legislative majority. And um, Diana Curiel, who's on the call, I do political work with her. She worked really hard with some of our colleagues on a bill to basically just say, let's not extract oil near schools and playgrounds and where people live. And it got killed in committee by Democrats. It got killed in committee by Democrats. So, you know, Gavin Newsom still takes a ton of money from the fossil fuel industry. So there's this way that the sort of, what I would say mainstream, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a right, everybody knows this, there's this fabulous fight happening within the Democratic Party and the progressives have achieved a lot and Joe Biden is doing a lot that actually does accord with what the progressives are asking for. And it's pretty damn exciting, but mm -hmm. there's still a huge number of Democrats who are, it's just keeping on with business as usual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like I know that in your book, you did talk about the Green New Deal and I'm curious like how viable, I mean, not, I mean, it's viable, but in terms of like actually like getting past, like getting, you know, the votes, like what do you think, see as the future of it? It's kind of do or die. Can I just say like, if we don't get the Green New Deal, we're toast. I mean, that's just like, it's kind of do or die. Because, yeah. and one of the things I love about the Green New Deal is the way it does center racial and economic justice. Because one of the things about sort of like older approaches to climate change was, oh, this is just a technical thing that us, we experty people can figure out. And don't you worry your pretty little heads about it, except, you know, bring your bags to the grocery store. And I think people are realizing, no, this is something everybody needs to be engaged in and talk about and, and, and see as the solution to their problems in life. So I think it's really crucial. Now, what chance does it have of passing? You know, what's interesting is that Biden's already doing quite a bit of what the Green New Deal asks for. And I think we're, we're, we're moving in that direction. And so we just have to keep, we just have to keep the fight up. And I think that's like one of the most important things is keeping that Green New Deal framework solidly in our head. It's only 14 pages, by the way. It's like this beautiful little tiny 14 page document. Other people have written 150, 200 page like detailed versions, but the, the AOC Markley version, it's literally 14 pages. And it's really good to keep that firmly in our mind and fight for it. That's awesome, yeah. And uh, so a couple other things that I wanna talk about in this, like the ways that we reframe thinking about climate change. I think one of the things you mentioned is that, you know, to truly address the impact of climate change, we have to rethink, you know, the ways that we talk about and think about work and labor. There, there is this sort of myth that we have to be martyrs to our job, right? That we are like, there's something noble in like in the grind. So how can we like, <laughs> one, why is that harmful for the climate? And then, you know, how, how can we sort of break out of that narrative? Yeah. One of the biggest narratives I think we need to break out of is the narrative that economic growth is necessary. And, and you know, and so the idea that, see, part of, the, part of the problem is that 
There's so much in capitalism that pushes, that says, you know, we just need to produce more, work more, produce more, work more, consume more. And if you're a decent person, you got to keep consuming. And we need to get off that treadmill. We really do. And it's not like we need to get rid of capitalism and then solve the climate crisis. We need to solve the climate crisis, understanding how capitalism works. And in that process, actually make our society less capitalist. So one of the things I think about is that it's, you know, what can I say? Economic growth measures throughput in the capitalist economy. It doesn't measure how much people are meeting their needs. So mm -hmm. if you use other economic indicators, so this is actually another narrative thing that I'm really interested in is like other stories of a successful economy, right? Mm -hmm. So there's all this stuff about, for example, genuine progress indicator. There are other ways of measuring how healthy our economy is that don't imply that the more we work, the more we consume, the better off we are. So I think breaking out of that growth narrative is super, super important. And the truth is, we could all be working 10, 20 hours a week and meeting our needs. I mean, we could, if our economy wasn't predicated on growth. And so I actually think that work time reduction is a really important part of solving the problem of the climate crisis. And, and I think that's really crucial to, to think about now, because like with these remote like work conditions, work has spilled into all parts of our lives, right? There's this way that, oh, I can't sleep because I'm remembering this email that I haven't responded to. And it's like, oh, this like constant feeling like I have to be doing something. So yeah. I, I appreciate that. There's, there's other ways to feel successful in the work that we do. Yeah. Yeah. I read a really interesting book recently about um, called The Spirit Level that's about how toxic inequality is. And one of the things I just wanted to say is that as we have inequality, we have people who feel like their own, it's like we've gotten to a point where people's sense of purpose in life is sort of wrapped up with consumerism and status. And that that's partly driven by inequality. So they actually did empirical studies that showed it's like a very linear relationship of the less inequality you have. So the more equal society is, the less people are concerned about status, the less stressed out they are, the less consumeristic they are. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the, a heavy, heavy wealth tax to fund all the things we need for the Green New Deal, it solves a whole bunch of problems. Yeah. Yeah, and I also, I think the flip side to this like um, growth narrative is the sort of capitalist like market, like supply, demand and scarcity yeah. narrative, right? Like the reason why we have to push, push, push is because there's not gonna be enough. Right. So I, I don't know. I just want to like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's one of my favorite topics. Like, no, this, and I have another book I'm working on. This actually called, literally called Enough. Like that's the title for the next book. And I actually think, right, that, that if you if you look at a textbook of mainstream economics, it actually says it, like it's, economics is the study of scarcity. And it's like that idea that there is not enough is actually baked into the core of how we talk about our economy, which is madness. And yet, you know, every year in world history, there's always been enough food to feed everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, in California right now with our horrible housing crisis, there are enough houses for everybody. The problem is a huge number of them are empty because people have second homes because uh, yeah, so there are plenty of houses. Mm -hmm. so, so, so most problems in this society, in, in human society have to do with, with distribution. They don't have to do with whether or not there's enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also the perception of like, of how much there is, because I think that, you know, when we are stuck in that scarcity mindset, that's when we start competing with each other. And that's what right. leads to the violence, to the sort of xenophobia, all of these different, yeah, like other social problems. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm also wondering if, like, since we are talking about like racial, um, you know, racial justice, and, and, you know, how that intersects with the climate, if you could help us deconstruct and, and you've done some of this already but like environmentalism is usually associated with like white folks right white folks who like shop at L.O. Bean or like you know what I mean like mm -hmm. drive Subarus or whatever but but how can we also shift that narrative in terms of who's actually engaging in the work as well right and so I think some of it's about lifting up the work I mean look there are a tremendous number of people of color in the climate justice movement and doing really, really important work. And so some of it's just about noticing that work, valuing that work, highlighting that work and talking about it. And then I do think then the movement also becomes more congenial as 
mostly white groups work on their racism and, and, and think about the sort of racism and the framing that they're doing and also sort of, you know, amplify and support the work of people of color. And then also it's, a lot of it is about how we frame what we're doing. And again, that sort of, that virtuous individual who buys all the right environmental stuff, that's a super unproductive, toxic narrative, right? And mm-hmm. but once you start, like you were saying, you know, but once you start to talk about the fact that the same system that is driving the climate to the cliff actually is the same system that created modern racism. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 one of the ways I like to think about, you know, so modern racism meaning the sort of racism that started 500 years ago. So not contemporary, but modern, right? Like back a little ways. Um, you know, really started as a justification for enslavement and colonialism that was about the beginnings of capitalism. And so this very idea uh, that people are expendable, that there are some people who don't matter, you know, there's some lives that don't matter, and that what matters is profit as opposed to sort of how are we living and how are we doing with each other. That's all part of the same sort of nexus of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, and I was just thinking about, again, about this being the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. I volunteer with with Fossil Free California, and when George Floyd was murdered, we put together a little statement, and a a couple of us wrote it, and it was like, how is what we're doing related to that? And, And I realized it's like the same system, right, the same set of practices that murdered George Floyd are the set of practices that are driving the climate crisis. There are different parts of it, there are different dynamics. You don't want to just collapse one into the other. And yet still the idea of a sort of a world where profit matters more than the needs of human beings, Mm -hmm. that leads to both of these problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really great point. Yeah. So I want to kind of also transition to like a maybe more hopeful or, you know, (laughs) exciting uh, line of questions because I think a big part of your book is this, you know, this practice of envisioning a better world, right? Um, Can you describe it, especially because, you know, we're quote unquote emerging from the pandemic maybe, (laughs) Um, but can you you describe this world a bit, how how to get to this place where we all live well, you know, what would it it look like? Yeah, and one of the things I say in the book is that when I first started doing climate change work, I couldn't quite imagine. I was just like, can we still have a lot of people? Can we still be, be in cities? Can we still be com- comfortable? And now I feel really clear, like, yeah, we're in the middle of a giant transformation. And, and one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is all the things that are happening. Because if you're not involved in the climate movement, you may think like nobody's woken up, but actually a lot of people have woken up and a lot is happening and it's happening very quickly. So when I imagine that world, um, it has cities with really good public transportation. It no longer has suburbs where you have to drive everywhere you go. And you know, when you think about actually like the racially exclusive zoning that created the suburbs also created the need for everybody to drive everywhere they go. But if you had shops and public transportation near where people lived, then their footprints would be less. So there's so many things like that. So so I imagine a world and like what, like 30 years from now where governments and transnational organizations are actually working hard to solve our problems, right? You know, when you think about like the WHO, the World Health Organization and the COVID crisis, how much people came together and said, we've got a problem, all hands on deck, let's solve it. And they did really good work. They did really good work. Those vaccines came out in no time, right? And they're not equitably distributed, but everybody's at least talking about it and fighting for that. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, the population is on target to stabilize at somewhere around, I actually forget the most recent numbers, but like 10 or 11 billion population, nobody can say that population is a problem anymore. We can support the number of human beings at the level we're gonna end up with. And so what it requires then is investments in the things that we need to live well. So like I said, Mm -hmm. transit oriented development, public transportation, building electrification, eating much less meat, which will be healthier, much healthier for people agribusiness not in control of everything. So then you have healthier food, you have healthier communities, you have communities that are better to live in because people actually walk around and see people and work time reduction, right? And you know, and national health care so that you don't need a job to have health care. And then you can cut down on your work. 
guaranteed incomes, you know, high levels of unionization. I think all of those things not only are possible, but they're actually necessary. And, and I think that we need to fight for that whole, that whole ball of all that stuff. Is that enough detail, Chess, or was it? <laughs> yes, that was great. That was great. I was like, I'm just, yeah, just keep going, keep going. Because okay. I'm I wanna I wanna be in that world with you. And I think a lot of us like, you know, you know, wanna wanna imagine that world and, and I think that you know we get stuck. There's like it feels like there's this big gap between getting to where we want to be, where we feel like, oh, you know, we can like address all these like large social problems. But the way you lay it out is very practical in that it's like, oh, you know, we just need, you know, healthier, yeah. And what I want to say, and it's stepwise moves from where we are, you know, in other words, like, you know, one of the things that was really great during the COVID crisis was all kinds of cities, including San Francisco, blocked all kinds of roads to cars, right? And so my daughter lives on a street in San Francisco that has just like little orange cones at, you know, at the end of the block. Like you can drive here if you live here, but otherwise don't go this way, go a different way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thousands of miles all around the world have been taken away from cars and given back to communities. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so what I'm saying is like stuff like that, like just think of all the good stuff, most of it, just do more of it and we're there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think this, the last year has shown us when there's a will, right, that think these things can be accomplished, right? Yeah. So in your mind, like from where we are now, what are the best tools that we have to getting to the world that you just described? Yeah, and so that was, I was yeah, thinking of transitioning to that when you said where there's a will, it's like, that's what we need is to be that super strong will because the mainstream Democrats do not have that super strong will. You know, there's just a way that, Systems have a, there's a great quote in this, I don't remember, anyhow, uh, an exquisite uh, way of replicating themselves. I don't have the quote right, but you know, basically the systems just kind of keep going the way they are unless unless you do something to force them to be different. So what I would say is that what a lot of us are doing in the divestment movement is trying to take away the social license of the fossil fuel industry. And that's really important. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of what I like to focus, talk about my focus on in the book is like building that positive world, right? Like investments in public transportation and, you know, unionization of the solar sector and all that, like there's all kinds of, you know, national healthcare, there's all kinds of positive stuff. And then there's also the negative side, which is taking away the political power of the fossil fuel industry and the agribusiness industry to kind of keep us from getting where we need to go. And so I feel like It's one of those things where I think anybody, wherever they are, can do this work, not as an individual in terms of yourself as a consumer, but yourself as a global citizen, right? Mm -hmm. Like your identity as a global citizen to push for changes in systems everywhere you are, right? So I think that's, again, you know, anywhere you are, there's probably a divestment campaign you can be involved with. Anywhere you are, there's probably a fight to get more money into public transportation, into good planning, into, you know, increasing investments in solar and making sure that the labor relations around it are good. Pretty much everywhere you are, there's some policy button you can push. And then there's also work for kind of art and culture to kind of help say that it's possible, say that we need to get there, make it that this is something exciting that we all want to be a part of. Mm, yeah, I like that because it's, you know, it, it kind of goes at the different things that you're looking at in your book. One is the culture, right? Changing yeah. the culture. And I think that the culture creators and, and changing the narrative is definitely part of that. But then there's also the policy piece, which is something that, you know, we can also engage in, you know, not as consumers, but as like, you know, organizers and community activists. Yeah. Yeah. You also have a lot of really great examples of like specific policies or, you know, um, changes that you've worked on. Full disclosure, I, I live in Berkeley, you know, an unceded Ohlone territory. And you did mention this, you know, Berkeley that has outlawed like new construction with using gas. And so I know that we're not like trying to think about it as like individual versus systemic, but to get to those policy changes, like what can an individual do to get to the, to the systemic change, you know, those policy changes. Yeah. And that's why I say to think of yourself as a citizen, right. And I I say global Mm -hmm. citizen because I don't mean, you know, a person with citizenship status, but you know, as Mm -hmm. as a, as a citizen of where you are. So some of it is about, you know, advocating for laws. I think a lot of it actually is about advocating for laws and finding out what those initiatives are. You know, the, this, this, the setbacks law that lost recently in California, which was so tragic, 
a ton of people worked on that, right? And there's lots of work just, you know, I mean, it saying sound trite, but it's like, call your representative, you know? So be involved in an organization that's doing that work and then be part of that pressure. I also think there's work to be done just being on the streets, right? So there's the sort of like, there's the call your representative be, you know, or be one of those people who actually comes up with a rule or something like that, you know, push your institution to install solar or to, you know, cut its greenhouse gas emissions, those kinds of things, um, engage in culture work, but also, get out on the street and say it's not, you know, like not acceptable. You know, right now there's the huge fight around line three, the Enbridge um, pipeline, you know, it's the, it's the next big pipeline fight that's happening mm -hmm. in Northern Minnesota. There, a bunch of people, you know, I was part of a civil disobedience a couple of weeks ago. It was really fun, you know, just we closed down a couple of banks in downtown San Francisco to draw attention to the whole line three struggle. And, um, you know, that kind of work is actually, if you can afford it, if you can afford the like, oh, I might be out of commission for a couple of days and probably I'm not going to be physically ill if, you know, something goes a little wrong mm -hmm. uh, or get deported or whatever, you know, it's um, that, that, that work on the street is really important and it's really, it can be really fun. I agree. I agree that being on the streets can be really fun also. Yeah. And I guess kind of a follow up to that, and maybe this also speaks to, you know, your previous book is once we have these new policies in place, like what would accountability look like in this ideal world or this new world that we're in? Yeah. And so I, one of the things I think is, is more democracy, you know, sort of more people engaged with what their governments are doing and paying attention to that and you know, not letting them shut down a, a fossil fuel extraction setback bill, like just not letting that happen. So I think a lot of it, so I think you end up with accountability with democracy. You know, like China is doing a lot of really important things for the climate, but they're doing it under, you know, a totally authoritarian system where there's no accountability and, you know, terrible human rights abuses and things like that going on. So, but I think we can make the transition in a democratic society if we do our work to build popular support for it. Mm. I just want to ask one more question, okay. open it up to the audience. But in terms of what you were just saying, like building a more democratic society, what are your tips for welcoming others into this fight for climate justice? Oh, so one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say like, you don't have to be an expert, right? And so when you get involved in climate stuff, there's a lot that seems really technical and scientific. And so part of the uh, point of the book is like, let me explain all that stuff to you. So, so some of the way to invite people in, I think is to let them know that they have a place, to let them know that this is a sort of an intersectional movement. You know, it's a movement that takes race, gender, sexuality, you know, income, all those things very seriously. So that it's a really welcoming movement kind of for, for everybody and that everybody has a stake in it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and also, you know, one of the things that I, I say in the book and that I really believe is that um, it's really good therapy being involved in the climate movement. Yeah. Because if you're not, you can think that nothing is happening and the world's just lighting on fire and everybody's just sitting back and there's something really depressing and upsetting about that, right? But when you're involved, it's like, no, there's a bunch of people who actually care and they're really fun to work with. And being with them is actually kind of healing. So, so that's just another thing I would say is that it actually, and one of the things I'm really happy about about movement culture right now is 20, 30 years ago, I feel like there was a lot of martyrdom in the movements I was in. You know what I mean? We're just like, if you really care, you're going to drop everything and do and just like burn yourself out. And I feel like movements that I'm in now, people take the concept of self-care really seriously and take really seriously the idea that, you know, if you need to step back for a while, you need to step back and, um, and that it matters how we, how we feel and how we treat each other. Yeah. And I find the climate justice movement generally a movement where people treat each other in, in most of my experience with a lot of actually warmth and kindness. I think that's a really great point that there are protective factors, like just things that protect our, our mental health to be in community with other people who care yeah. about the future of the earth. You know, I think that's, that's, a really, that's a really important, like, I don't know how to fit that on a bumper sticker, but that is. <laughs> it's where the caring people are, right? It's yeah. where the people who care are, who are in touch with their care, right? Some people I think care, but they're sort of like, you know, just whatever, but like we're living our care. 
you know, and that's a, that's a really good place to be. And, and, and those are good people. Yeah. All right. I wonder, let's, uh, yeah. I saw a couple questions. Let me see. Diana writes, I recently heard an interview with Kate uh, Rayworth, who wrote Donut Economics. Do her ideas fit with some of yours about the direction our economy needs to take? Yes, I love Kate Rayworth and Donut Economics. I would recommend that book to everybody. It's really, really good. And so, um, yeah, her, her work is super consistent with mine. Her thing is like, look at, think about a donut. There's like, there's the, there's not enough. And so people are going to starve. And then there's, we're using too much and the earth can't handle it. So we need to stay in the sweet spot of the actual donut, not the hole in the middle or the outside. And, um, and so then she's an economist. She's one of very few, I, I would say, I can like name off probably like 10 economists who are doing really important work to rethink how we think of the economy in ways that actually help point us toward a sustainable world as opposed to just like, just growth, growth, growth. So yeah, no, Kate Raworth is fabulous. And then there's a couple of comments about the, you know, recent headlines forecasting the doom as a result of slowing population growth. Do you want to speak to that? Oh my God. Can I you right? I remember back in the 70s, like I had a biology teacher who was like, oh, the population time bomb, it's gonna explode and we're all gonna die. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh no, the population's gonna go down and we're all gonna die. It's like, you know, the people who say that that it's bad for our economy that the population is going down are the people who believe in mainstream economics, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, well, you need more workers to create more stuff to feed the old people. It's like, no, we don't. We have enough stuff to feed the old people. We're fine. We just need to share. So mm -hmm. that's what I would say is that, um, uh, you know, I've never been in favor. There's so much that's toxic and racist in the population conversation. And so I've always sort of shied away from that, you know, but now that the population is going down, I think it's a good, you know, you think about like Germany, right? One of the things that, that Germany has a negative population, let in some more Africans, you know? There's a bunch of people whose land is no longer farmable, who need a place to live. So it seems to me that, that if we had a decent politics in the world, which of course we don't, that you could imagine all those places that are worried about not having enough young people and sort of towns that are dying because there aren't enough young people, there are plenty of people in the world who would love to live in that little town, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of young people, we, we have a question about, um, can you say something about the role of youth in the climate movement? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So my fossil free California friends know that it's just like, hallelujah. The youth are amazing. So some of us have been working for many years to try to get our California's two big pension systems to divest from fossil fuels. And we really were just banging our heads against the wall for many years. And then a bunch of young people joined us. And all of a sudden we got two board members, Fiona Ma and Tony Thurman to come out in favor of fossil fuel divestment. Now it didn't happen overnight, but when you have young people in the room saying, like literally they're saying, big oil stole my childhood. That was one of our banners, you know? And they're saying, I resent the hell out of the fact that I have to stop goofing around with my friends and come and tell you that you need to stop destroying the world. It's a very powerful lesson. And I always hated, I know like what 10 years ago, people would be like, oh, we have to educate the youth because they're the ones who are going to solve this problem. And I always thought that was a terrible thing to say. You know, it's like, no, we're the grownups. We're the ones who need to solve the problem. But in fact, when the young people join the conversation, adults act a lot less stupid in front of young people than they do around other adults. They put their best self on it. And when the young people say like, what are you doing? Like, why are you not doing anything? They just don't lie quite as in the yeah. same way. I just, I don't know if my kids would agree with you that like adults don't act as stupid when there's youth, young people around because they think I act stupid a lot. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, but I know, I know what you mean. That's because your kids are at that age. Give them three years, Chessa, they'll be over it. <laughs> I know, my kids are way too cool for me already. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, another question is, uh, given how the Democrats stopped Bernie Sanders twice, should we instead put more energy into direct action, perhaps like what Extinction Rebellion is doing? I don't think it's an either or. I really don't. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, I teach community organizing and there's the sort of like, there's the outsiders who are just putting pressure on the system. And then there are the insiders who are translating that pressure into policy stuff and you need both. And so, I mean, I'm just like, 
hallelujah for AOC, right? I mean, that she's, you know, that she's, and Bernie too, right? That they're in there at the seat of power, translating things into policy and actually, you know, folks working, you know, uh, Biden had a climate team that had really good people on it and they came up with some really good stuff. So, so both and, and I always think of, you know, you used to talk about will before it's like, it, it's the street action that increases the will that shifts the, the way people act, right? You know, famous thing people always talk about is that um, we got some of the best environmental legislation in this country under Richard Nixon, and he hated the environmental movement, but they just put so much pressure on him that he had to do or the country was going to fall apart. So, so he did what they wanted him to do. So, and yet you get more traction when the people on the inside are better. So I just think you need both. Mm -hmm. We have another sort of comment question. I see a need for a big shift to include disabled people and people without agency in many other ways. For example, the road closures and parklets in SF have made it pretty impossible for me to go many places because it's impossible to park. I gave up on public transportation years ago, left stranded too many times and can't do stairs. It's important to find ways to act and organize uh, without serving just able-bodied slash younger people slash people with money. What are your thoughts? on that. So wow. the intersections of disability justice with climate justice. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. You know, that's, I, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's really, that's really important. And I don't know in San Francisco, the sort of the parklet conversation and the closed streets conversation, how much they've thought about accessibility issues. I just don't know that. Cause I mean, it seems to me that if you say we're building a world that works for everybody, right? Like the, the, that's, if you start with that as your premise and that everybody matters, then you have to take disability issues seriously. And so all I can say is, yeah, that's really important. And I think, you know, one of the things about, about capitalism is that you only matter to the extent that you're able to kind of produce profit, right? And so that the more we move to a society where people's needs matter and they're front and center, then the needs of disabled people need to be part of that too. So yeah, no, I really appreciate that question. And, you know, and wouldn't it be nice to have really, really good systems of public transportation like they do in a lot of countries that actually are super accessible. Like there are places, right? I mean, I know, you know, uh, I, I know BART, like always half the elevators are out. Like apparently, you know, like really in San Francisco, you can't keep an elevator functioning. It's ridiculous. And that just shows a lack of will, right? And it shows a lack of care. It doesn't show a lack of like technological brilliance because everybody knows how to make an elevator. Well, I don't, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> people who, the people who need to know how to make elevators know how to make elevators and they know how to keep them running, but they've chosen not to. Mm -hmm. And uh, another question we just got, what are your hopes in writing this book? What changes would you like to see in the climate movement? Okay. So my hope in writing the book, this really was about that I, we need a lot more people. We just need a lot more people to do this work. And so my hope with the book was just like, okay, here, here's your manual. Like, take it, go. Anything you're confused about, just read about it and go. And you're ready to go. So that was like my main hope. But I also, I you know, all the stuff I've been saying about racial and economic justice and sort of shifting the narrative on what it means to be an environmentalist and what it means to kind of save the climate seems really important to me. In other words, that if and that those things aren't just add-ons, we're actually not going to get where we need to go with a climate movement that looks like it's about how white middle-class people consume. Like we're not going to get there. We're only going to get there if the movement looks like it's something that's welcoming, inviting, urgent, important for everybody to kind of meet their needs and build a better world. So, so I do think that a big part of writing the book was to kind of lots of people are moving things in that direction is to kind of cement that, that sort of environmental justice lens on, um, on climate change. And then another question we just got, how do you perceive Greta Thunberg and her position and her activity? I adore Greta Thunberg, I really do. I just, I, I, you know, and one of the things I love about Greta actually is, not, not that I know her, I'm just saying her first name, um, is, um, is actually her disability stuff. I don't know if people are aware of that, that she, she uh, is on the, the um, spectrum and she talks about that as kind of part of her superpower, right? Is that, you know, that she doesn't accept the kind of evasive, confusing hypocrisy lies that she sees all around her. And she's like, wait, 
that's not right, you know, and can kind of cut to the truth and can really hyper focus. So she actually wrote a beautiful piece about about how her um, so-called disability was actually is a really important part of who she is and why she's been successful in the way she's been successful. She's also done a really good job herself of lifting up youth climate activists of color from around the world. So there was a, a famous terrible case that happened at the at Davos last year where there were four climate activist girls, three of whom were white, one of whom was black. And Reuters took a picture of the girls and cropped out the black girl because they thought the picture looked better. And so a bunch of climate youth made a big issue of that and about the sort of the, the invisibility of the black girl who was in that picture. And Greta Thunberg was, in, was one of the people who spoke up really loudly about that. So she's very smart about climate justice actually. Mm -hmm. I have kind of a follow-up to that, especially because we're talking about uplifting the, the voices and the work of uh, folks of color in the climate movement. Are there, who should we know about? Who should we follow, you know, like, because I know a lot of us have heard about Greta Thunberg, but, you know, what are some other organizations, particularly that are working at the intersections of racial justice and climate justice? Yeah. So in California, there's a group called the Center for Race, Poverty, and the Environment. There's a group called APEN, the Asian Pacific uh, Environmental Network, um, that does really good work. Those are, those are two big, good, good, strong California groups. You know, it's funny, I, th I think we're still really struggling with this. I think about, you know, Sunrise is still, you know, wonderful outpouring of energy from youth and doing really important work. And yet there's been some criticism that, that it has been more attractive to, to white youth. And so, it, you know, they're really working on their racial issues. There's a, a, a youth of color organization that we work with called Youth Versus Apocalypse that's also real, just wonderful, just wonderful. They're based in the East Bay. And there's also another uh, youth group called Earth Guardians that's also mostly a person of color oriented group. Um, I'm not seeing any more questions in the chat. Cool, all right. Well, I guess I wanted to say thank you so much everybody for being here. It was really good to see people and uh, yeah. Oh. oh, this has been really fantastic. Thank you both for being here tonight. And I encourage you, please do buy a book. Uh, City Lights, as I mentioned, is open for business. Uh, as many of you know, we're a publishing house as well as a bookstore. So please check out the books that we publish. We're at www.citylights.com. So I ask you, please be safe, be well. We look forward to seeing you all again very, very soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much, Peter. And thanks, Jessa. Bye, everybody. Thanks so much. Oh, you know, oh, we missed this question. There's a great question on the nonprofit industrial complex. Oh, oh, I've been overcoming that. I yeah. would love to have answered that question, but oh, well. I think that uh, Greg, who asked it, is still in the in the meeting. If you, yeah, go ahead, go for it. Uh, okay, so uh, <laughs> I think that you know. There is, I, you know, I guess what I think is that there's a lot to watch out for with nonprofits and the way that they are driven by funders who try to push them to not be ambitious. And so that like when you say nonprofit industrial complex, I think there's a couple problems. So that's one is the sort of role of funders and keep people's scope super small. Don't talk about capitalism. Don't talk about anything big or hard. Don't, you know, piss off anybody. And then there's also the sort of what people talk about the like, the competition, like every nonprofit is a business competing with every other nonprofit. And so then you have to like take all the credit for something good that happens. So I just think it's really important to figure out what those problems are, like to, to, to name them individually and then to, to, to fight against them everywhere you, where, everywhere you are. You know, when you see a nonprofit that's, um, and I can tell you like in Fossil Free California, we are mostly volunteer run and it's really good. It's really nice working in an atmosphere where the funders are not micromanaging us and making us think small, you know? So that's, that's what I would say. And just really supporting those organizations that, that are not playing those really, really kind of toxic games. All right, y'all, this is Thanks so much everybody. fun. Thanks again. Thanks, Love Peter. you all. Thanks, Cynthia. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.